I guess let's get into just your thesis. I mean, neo-feudalism, because all of these things uh, are kind of reflective of this era, Jody, and it is a unique era. And for people who consider themselves socialists or Marxists, who studied, you know, Marx and Engels, they think of socialism as the next stage of evolution after capitalism. That's what we take away from this literature. You know, what comes after capitalism? Even the idea that we're grappling with today, that capitalism inevitably destroys itself, that it is destroying itself. It is, you know, we are digging our own graves. Um, but for those people and for those who are not familiar with this concept, explain this different view that you have. Okay, so um, you're 100%, I really appreciated when you were saying towards the end how capitalism inevitably destroys itself. Um, that is something that we um, we recognize um, as, as, as just a kind of fundamental aspect of this system, right? It wrecks lives, it wrecks entire economic sectors, it wrecks w- ways of life. Um, it you know hurts it hurts workers it wrecks the environment and you know in the Marxist tradition the understanding has been that capitalism at the same time as it destroys itself it also creates the conditions for something new it creates the the centralization the um, the concentration of means of production the centralization of production um, that can make something better that can make socialism possible but it's never guaranteed right? we know like Marx and also you know others in the Marxist tradition like Lenin for example and Rosa Luxemburg uh, Mao everybody recognizes that you have to have struggle too, right? A central tenet of the socialist tradition is class struggle and political struggle and the struggles of oppressed national minorities. History isn't just given to us. We make it. And as Mark said, under conditions that we don't choose. And this means our struggles can, can be won and they can be lost. So capitalist develop economic development, creates the conditions that can make socialism possible. But if socialism is possible, it's because we fight for it and win that fight. We can't um, ignore the element of political struggle. So my um, thinking that I'm I'm using this category of neo-feudalism to express is that what happens in periods when we're losing the struggle or when we've lost the struggle you know, for over 40 years. So the work the we are used to thinking about um, neoliberalism as a period of working class defeat. And, um, you know, that's labor union participation is way low. Um, factories have closed down. Um, and the, we don't, we've not been in a really strong place in the class struggle for, I mean, in the working class struggle, you know, at the standpoint of production for a really long time. There have been victories in other areas, but the class, in the class struggle, um, labor has not been on, um, winning for a while now. So what happens when capitalism is able to you know, run roughshod over most of us when capitalism is 
um, gets rid of all the regulations, when the political system that supports the capitalist class blocks all kinds of progressive social change. Um, my um, hypothesis is that what we see is something like neo-feudalism, a situation where more and more of us encounter lives where we're sort of like immiserated serfs or proletarianized serfs under conditions where there are lords um, around us who trap us in you know, complicated technological and legal schemes where we're always have our, you know, we earn money, but that's immediately expropriated from us with weird sorts of fines and rents um, where capital is, um, where, where accumulation happens less through commodity production, but through taking money, like taking things from people, whether or not that's through these fees and fines um, or, or other things that I'm sure we'll get into. So the basic idea is that um, you know, socialism is a stage that can follow from capitalism. But if we're not winning the struggle worse things can follow from, you know, and, and that capitalism can lead to even worse forms. And neo-feudalism is a name for these tendencies towards something worse. Yeah, you know, Jody, when you mentioned that, you know, how you, you earn a wage, but it's immediately somehow taken. Like, I think the latest study on this uh, in the current uh, uh, state of inflation we're in is that 64% of American workers live paycheck to paycheck. And when you really think about that, you know, what does that mean? It means you have to, you're going to work, usually working like more than one job to, to be able to make ends meet, but you're doing all this work, but then everything that you collect in your paycheck immediately just goes back to capitalists, like where you just are literally left with nothing. It is kind of like really weird when you really think about what that, that means, that that many millions of people are living paycheck to paycheck. Yeah, totally. And I think that fits with um, Abby's earlier point about, you know, under these conditions, I mean, how are people able to engage in a lot of political activity and political organizing and demonstrating and protest? It's like you're working two or three jobs and you can't afford to like you can't afford to get injured. You can't afford to get arrested. You can't afford child care for even more um, hours of the day. You can't afford, you know, afford to get fired. So these conditions are very extreme and they make, um, you know, they make political work, um, particularly for those of us who want to see a, um, a change in the socialist direction. They make it even harder than it's been. You break this concept down into a few categories that I want to go deeper into. And just to give a heads up to our listeners, the terms are very academic and a little difficult to understand, but the explanations that you give to them are not and they actually just make perfect sense once you describe what these mean. Um, Jody and I want to get into each and every one because they're so, so incredibly important to wrap your mind around. The first characteristic of this neo-feudal state is is parcelated sovereignty. Um, what what, is, what the hell does this mean? No, I mean, how do I guess how is this put into practice in this country and abroad, especially when we're talking yeah. about like a global empire, especially the countries being subjugated by the empire? Like, for example, Mike and I went to Ecuador. 
Um, there is a huge arbitration going on with Chevron oh. where they have been fought. I mean, they've been fighting for God, I don't know how many years to try to get reparations for the toxification, you know, the, the dumping, deliberate dumping of all of the oil in the Amazon rainforest. And they actually did win. But then Chevron came in and essentially yeah. nullified this ruling because of how much power they have. Yeah, that's such a good example. Okay, so I'm going to um, try to kind of break this up because it's it is sort of an academic term. Um, it comes from um, the Marxist theorist uh, Ellen Mikesons Wood and Perry Anderson as they're describing what made. Um, feudalism in Europe during the Middle Ages, what were its characteristics? And, um, and that's, it's one of the characteristics of, of this European feudalism that I think we see today. And that is this parcelated or fragmented sovereignty. So what, what this fragmented, like, so people can just think visually, just think, oh, lots of little lords in their castles warring with one another, even as they might be little lords within a larger empire, and the empire might make them sort of send soldiers to do X or Y. So the first way to just think about it is is these um, little lords that have economic and political authority over the people in their jurisdiction. So a lord can tell a serf, um, okay, you have to give me 30% of your um, crop every year. And by the way, um, I decide what 30% is. And if this is a good part of crop and any time that you've committed a crime, I decide whether or not you're innocent or guilty. So, so the political and the economic blur together. What we see now, and exactly in the um, example that you were talking about from um, from Ecuador is a blurring of states and corporations. And this um, plays out really clearly in arbitration law. So when there's a dispute, are the decisions made to resolve the dispute? Are they made in accordance with state law in public courts, like in accordance with the laws of Ecuador? Or are the decisions around a dispute made via arbitration, which is a legal um, process that is established by parties to a contract and almost always to the advantage of the most powerful participant in a contract. Submission to arbitration um, rather than actual law undermines public law and it establishes zones where contracts trump law. So you mentioned the um, proceedings in Ecuador where there, you know, the people can make a democratic decision um, that are going that wants to subject industries to um, environmental and labor regulations, that wants to um, make hold industries accountable for um, devastation that they've created, for violations of the law. And what happens is that the corporation says, no, your country is party to these various trade agreements that mean that we get to take this to an arbitration court and decide there, right? So so we, the company that's taking the wealth of your people um, in the, what's really a neo-colonial arrangement, we will also um, subject you to this arbitration um, proceeding. Like if you, if you try to hold, uh, make us accountable to your law, we sue you. 
and bring you to arbitration, and nine times out of ten, the corporation wins. So this is a direct undermining of that country's sovereignty and legal and and corporate or political and economic power blur together. Like when we see this really strongly on the corporate side, because the corporation can force the country into arbitration. I'll add that over the last decade, there's also been a proliferation of new arbitration courts in Africa to try to subject um, extractivist I mean, to, that extractivist companies want because they want to avoid state law. And it's also the case in um, for U.S. workers now. This is it's actually quite shocking. Over 60 percent of U.S. workers, primarily those in industries where they're pay, or occupations that where they're paid less than $13 an hour, they don't have any right to take their employee to court, they sign away that right and agree to arbitration. So they lose, they have no rights to unionize because they agree in the arbitration. This has been held up by you know, the unelected, life-appointed you know, lords on the Supreme Court. Um, they, you know, employees have to um, resort to arbitration with their employer under terms set by the employers rather than actually um, go to a court. So this rise in arbitration is part of this parcelization of sovereignty where um, economic and political blurs together and the whole sphere of like that we thought of in terms of political rights just basically vanishes. And this is like a relatively new order of things it's the in with respect to u.s labor the supreme court laws have been i think it was 2013 and 2014 um i don't have the the names of the um decisions right at the top of my head um but it's changed very quickly as more and more companies realized oh we can um you know require our employees to subject um, to pursue arbitration and to give up, you know, the rights to go to, um, you know, the, a right to sue. They you forfeit a right to sue. We're also pretty familiar with this on um, as lots of we, a lot of consumer agreements have this, and some of sometimes we hear this with um, with Silicon Valley people and non compete clause non compete clauses. But the arbitration um, system has now spread throughout. American labor law in ways that are really horrifying. Would the IMF and World Bank um, like economic subjugation through these loans um, with all these preconditions on these loans across developing countries, would that fold into this larger theory or is it only? Oh, yeah. Threat? No, yeah. You're, you're totally right. I'm sorry. I'm very excited. Um, it's 100 <laughs> percent. right? Like the the way that the IMF um, puts more fines onto countries that are having a hard time paying their already um, extortionate debts is a typical neo-feudal um, kind of maneuver. I mean, first of all, you just think practically speaking, um, why in the world, if, you, if a country can't pay its debt to give it more fines, seems really counterproductive. But if the goal is to just continue to subjugate them, to continue to uh, just extract every little bit of, of, of everything from them until they die, then, yeah, that's what the fines do. It's a ter- it's, it's like basic um, coercive power 
rather than strictly speaking um, an economic model. It's take uh, the phrase I really like is taking, not making. Right? If they wanted to, if they wanted the co- country to do well, they would invest a lot in it so that the com- the country could repay and they would make things and you know increase forms of production. But instead, they um, they they take and take and take, and this taking, not making is a key um, example of like a neo-feudal dynamic. Right. No, it's such a good point. And these are like so-called allied countries with the United States and its junior collaborators. And then you have the so-called adversaries that are just being heavily sanctioned, which is also this kind of looming threat, you know, cutting off entire national jurisdictions. The Treasury Department in the wake of 9-11 was granted this unprecedented and essentially unregulated power to just cut countries off at the knees, decimate entire economies and subjugate their people with like basically no political accountability. So you have, you know, corporate media barely mentioning sanctions as an effect of like Venezuela's economic freefall or, you know, Cuba's food shortages. It's it's quite fascinating the way that that's been able to manipulate global economics um, in, in a way, I guess, as part of this neo-feudalism, because it's just the power has been consolidated and expanded to such an extreme degree. Yeah, I also I think um, it fits in a lot of ways with if we just want to keep looking at the pattern, um, the patterns of um, de-development. You know, Walter Rodney talked about how Europe um, de-developed Africa. Um, this these sanctions have are political and economic at the same time, right? They seek to politically coerce and punish. And they seek to economically devastate. So the the key here that that and that lets us that I and, and it's why I think neo feudalism helps provide a way of of mentally arranging this stuff is seeing the combination of an economic and a political measure. I mean, why would anyone think it it could make sense within international law for a country to handle its disagreement? by starving the people of another country to death, by denying the people of another country much needed medicines, by denying them fuel. But with this combination or this blurring of the economic and the political, that's what we see, right? We see these measures and that the U.S. constantly is taking and doing horribly with respect to, um, in in particular, um, Venezuela and, um, and Cuba, but you know now more and more um, with respect to Russia, um, this is this. Co- but it's this combination of the economic and the political that's really striking, and I think is something um, that we can see as, as recognizably something new. It's not just regular um, diplomacy or, or or regular like political struggle um, between countries. Right. I think the de-development is a really key phrase there because it's, again, like the the neo-feudal subjugation, keeping these countries under your thumb. Um, And just as a side note, sanctions have increased 1000 percent over the last 20 years. Um, You know, at the same time, counterterrorism is also on the rise. Um, Let's move on to hinterlandization. This is another (laughs) it's another uh, tough one. But um, but of course, it can be explained really well, especially describing the way cities are mapped out today in terms of the accumulation of capital and labor. 
I guess explain this concept and what what it does to essentially destroy the concept of city spaces and the surrounding communities. Okay, so um, I first I want to um, give a plug. I get the term um, hinterlandization from Phil Neal's book. Um, hinterlands, which is really interesting in describing the kind of landscapes of of late capitalism and our capitalism in an imperialist era where where the capitalist system is essentially destroying itself and it destroys communities, it destroys the land, and it leaves a, a devastation all around us. So I use then this term hinterlandization as um, to designate how capitalism produces um, a, a, a bifurcated landscape of prosperity and success for the few and the rich, and then a desolated, um, terrible landscape for those who are exploited, oppressed, and left behind. So you have really lively you know, cities with beautiful areas and cute cafes and shops with guards and expensive apartments also with guards and walls. And these are surrounded by economically depressed and often environmentally poisoned and polluted areas. So across the U.S. and many other countries as well, um, we see that capital has our capitalism has basically eaten up and spit out entire communities where there were once thriving small towns. They're now abandoned strip malls, pawn shops, usurious payday lenders, and also giant warehouses and distribution centers, call centers, prisons. Um, there may be um, kind of half-started housing developments that were then abandoned before much was built. We also see shut down schools, closed hospitals. So if folks just think about the outskirts of most um, communities, this is what we see. And, um, and so one of the ways this is described um, is as a division between alpha cities and kind of left cities that are left behind or loser cities. And it also happens within cities, right? Wealth um, doesn't just concentrate. Wealth itself produces extremes so that there are massive gaps, gaps between the rich and the poor. So um, we have a situation where the richer the city is, the larger the population of homeless people, which, I mean, if we just think about it, that should be absurd, right? If the city is all that rich, shouldn't everyone share in the prosperity? But in fact, it's actually common and it's kind of taken for granted as a feature of life in New York and LA, Seattle, Washington, DC, and so on. So this is what I mean by hinterlandization, this division between you know, rich, prosperous areas and then the eviscerated ecologically and economically devastated areas um, within and around them. And we should, and, and you mentioned at the uh, beginning of our conversation, I think the um, prevalence of diseases of despair, that's one of the characteristics of life in the hinterlands is this um, low, low, um, 
decreasing life expectancy rate, um, problems with um, opioid abuse, with various forms of health, um, with health issues caused by um, inadequate nutrition and um, abuse of drugs and the lack of mental health um, and medical facilities, right? That's all part of this general, we get uh, another expression of this would be a crisis of social reproduction as life becomes harder and harder for the people in the hinterlands. Yeah, I'm thinking right now of, you know, these are the frontline communities, the sacrifice zones. My yeah. guy went to Houston and it was, I mean, completely devastated and not only um, devastated, but also like these chemical companies just have free reign to just pollute at will, uh, just granted just unprecedented like rights you know meanwhile people there's playgrounds right next to these but there's no actual social services or thinking of somewhere like detroit which is just blighted homes for you know miles and miles and miles with no nothing at all and giant empty warehouses where there used to be production there Uh, but i guess you know talk a little bit more about about how this is new like when when this really happened um, to become the extreme that it is today, because I feel like it might be a hard concept of thinking that this is something novel when we look at how, you know, capitalism has always produced these kind of extreme disparities, even in city centers. I mean, there I don't know how new, I, obviously, we're in the epidemic yeah. of the homelessness crisis here, and especially Hollywood, it's just quite severe and extreme. But I feel like that's always been a feature. Um, that's a good point. So I mean, I have to um, go a little bit in the weeds now in my um, this general kind of theoretical idea of neo feudalism, and the my hypothesis or my my wager is that capitalism is turning itself into something that is not recognizably capitalist anymore. So capitalism's own processes are destroying capitalism. And it's destroying capitalism not in the way that, you know, socialist revolutionaries for centuries have wanted, but destroying capitalism in ways that are are creating a situation that's something um, even worse than capitalist, right? That's part of this de-development. So if if we think about capitalism as following specific laws of motion, This means that capitalism has dynamics that are competitive, that are that and that this competition leads capitalists to reinvest what they reinvest their profits back into production so that they continue to expand and produce. And competition leads capitalists to try to improve things, to become more efficient and better. What we've seen over the last uh, 20, 30 years, is capitalists not reinvesting in production. Instead, what they do is kind of hoard the wealth or eat the proceeds, meaning they have stock buybacks and massive executive salaries. They don't invest back in production. They they um, hoard their capital. Also, we see more and more um you know, capitalist firms not engaging in um, real um, improvement, but in destruction, right? In market destruction for, and I'm thinking here of things like um, Uber and um, particularly Uber. Uber is like the best example because it destroys 
um, transportation, sort of um, urbanly regulated transportation markets um, in order to make sure that they and maybe, you know, Lyft is the only other one are the ones who can um, determine, um, you know, how much rides cost, who can ride where and uh, and take their cut of all of this, even though they don't own any cars for themselves. Right. They don't they don't invest in capital. They don't hire um, drivers. Instead, they provide these apps that turn that where people take people's own um, um items, people's own, the things that they own, like their cars become tools for oppressing them. Like that's completely strange. Like, like that's Airbnb actually very too, much like yeah. a surf. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. And Airbnb is totally. So it's like my apartment now becomes not really my apartment, but only the way that I make money for somebody else. So, um, the, so anyway, it's this, so this is part of this general argument regarding capital, a tendency within capitalism. So you're 100% right to say that there are aspects of hinterlandization that have been part of capitalism because capitalism has always relied on kinds of de-development in some areas as it's developed in others. And now we see this de-development maybe coming home more, right? Coming back into the um, sort of imperial center um, as as capitalism essentially eats itself alive and destroys us all along with it. Yeah, I think that's this is so important. I think a term you mentioned before that really meant a lot to me, I guess it's, it's a way that helps you mentally organize what's around us. I think most people, especially people listening, are conscious of the fact that like everything is horrible all around us. Like you can't go yeah. to an American city without seeing this deep despair, division, everything. Um, you know, I lived... Uh, most of my time in Los Angeles and downtown Los Angeles. Abby and I uh, lived in downtown Los Angeles together. Arguably one of like the worst downtowns in the United States. In the world. (laughs) Yeah, in terms of like how poorly maintained and how big the disparities are. But, you know, like there's this one experience that sticks in my head where uh, this is like shortly before we started Empire Files in 2015, but I was working. I had to catch an early like 5 a.m. bus to a grocery store I was working at. Um, and there's this brand new high rise condo building of which there are a lot of now in downtown L.A. Uh, like the condos in these buildings go for like one point five million dollars for like a one or two bedroom condo. The buildings are mostly empty because like these real estate developers, like they're mainly building them for like 10 or 20 years down the line or because most of the people that buy these expensive condos like don't live in them for most of the year and then so i'd always be at the bus stop like in the shadows of these giant buildings and there's this old elderly woman who is always asleep on the bench at this bus stop that i was wait at waiting at and then one morning she was just dead and so like this this scene of this like you know the ambulance and all this stuff like in this situation of waiting for the bus to go to the shitty job with this like all these condos around it was just like a very striking thing and i think the way most people you know people who are somewhat politically politically conscious are like, well, this is capitalism. This is late stage capitalism. And that's the way you that's the way you understand it. But understanding this concept of like hinterlandization, it, it gives you a better way to organize it in your mind without just saying, oh, this is just capitalism. This is what capitalism is like. It is something different now. And there are other ways that we can understand it conceptually. Yeah, I, I hope that that's the goal. Right. I, I mean, the, you you're. capture and and my hope is by with these concepts of you know parcelated sovereignty and hinterlandization 
we, we've got to link them. And that's what this neo-feudalism does, is to try to let us see how these different aspects that are part of capitalism's own self-destruction are all connected with each other. When I give, an, an, we've been talking some about um, sort of the horrors of Uber and Airbnb, right? They're kind of sector destroying. They destroy any market they enter into. Um, it's also been, and I was just reading this in the last day or two, um, this has also been happening um, in the housing market around um, single family rentals. I guess they call SFRs. There's been five corporations that have been buying up single family homes and they buy them not to sell them to people, but to sell them to other corporations um, as investment vehicles. And these other corporations will maybe rent them. But the people who are renting them now become essentially dependent on these on really specific apps that um, and the apps do things like determine um, special fees that they have to pay. They're supposedly a kind of of, um, rent to own. But what that is meaning in practice is that there's no kind of superintendent watching the building and responsible for repairs. The person renting is responsible for their own repairs. They're very easily stuck with additional fees and fines. And they're also much more quickly evicted. So this whole, th- there was recently a, um, a congressional inquiry into this, these corporations taking over the single family rental market. Um, they bought like in, in, um, two, in 2021, 40% of the housing in the Atlanta area went into, was bought up by these um, companies buying oh this family rentals. Yeah. Oh, this is crazy. It's really awful. Um, so like people get a bit and people who were foreclosed on or evicted now try to get back on the market, but they can't afford a house. So they rent to own from one of these horrible companies who actually has no intention of, you know, the people ever actually being able to buy the house back because they keep increasing the rent and they really easily evict and foreclose on people. Right? They, they are constantly, um, the, the companies apparently use a model, a business model called I buying and it's it's part of the way that they use these b- different algorithms that tell the company which big bunches of houses to buy or which house to buy where, um, because then they will be able to you know engage in this kind of horrible um, faux kind of rent to own business. And no one will be surprised to hear that um, this happens primarily in areas with large numbers of black families and in um, area areas and zip codes with large numbers of single female heads of households. Jesus Christ. It doesn't get any more yeah. dystopian than that. This complete lack of accountability or even direct, you know, relationship with another human being. It's all just so right. siloed off and you're so alienated from even what's happening. And it really is just, it, you've described it as like a hyper modern form of feudalism because of the advent of technology um, advancing just this kind of bizarre dystopian hellscape. I mean, (laughs) I mean, and and also just like going back to something that you said really quickly too, and I want to get into the Lords and peasants, but it's, it's so counterintuitive. Like it's so like you said that, you know, you would think that 
in order for capitalists to understand that they need to continue to advance capitalism, they would need to like somehow reinvest. Like they would need to somehow right. give us a modicum of stability or humanity. But no, it's all stripped down. It's all hoarded. And it, it, it's, it is just fascinating, like the counterintuitive nature of this stage of capitalism that, that we're in. Yeah, the um, um, his economic historian, Robert Brenner, has been talking about this. Um, maybe we might say like late stage neoliberalism or neo-feudalism. And he also uses the term neo-feudalism. He's been talking about the um, politically driven upward redistribution of wealth. So, po- you know, po- um, political um, officials, state policies are all motivated around redistributing wealth upward. Um, it's um, it's um, I think about this when I'm not in my, you know, not wearing an academic hat. I just think about this is the climate is changing. Um, things are bad and the rich are grabbing everything they can as fast as they can. And they're leaving the rest of us to fight it out. And that's why the Supreme Court just said, OK, here's more guns for everybody. It's dangerous out there. You guys are going to have to fight it out for yourselves. And uh, and you'll also be forced to have more kids so that you'll have you know more people to wage your horrible um, wars in this hellscape. But I, I, um, I really feel like it's um, because. It's not been the case for, and liberalism is a response to this, it's not been the case that production has been a primary way to make profit for a long time now, maybe 30 years. The very rich have have sought other ways, and they've sought intellectual property. That's a way they can get rents, um, various kinds of strange financial strategies, and then all of this widespread taking. And that's what we're that's the that's what we're the economic political formation encounter now. And would you say that, you know, is this something that where we are today, is this something that like the ruling class has consciously created or planned like, okay, we can do this to become stronger as a class and reap bigger profits and all this? Or is this more akin to like the system evolving in the way like biological organisms evolve, like the way evolution happens in biology is there is some dramatic change in the landscape or environment and new niches are opened up and whatever can exploit that niche or find a a success in that niche becomes dominant. And, and this, this tree opens up of, of evolution for them. And so all these, this moment that you're describing, is this something that is, is conscious by the ruling class or is just kind of this just this system growing in its own weird, monstrous way? Um, I, I, I think we should think it's probably both, right? Are there elements of both that's not one or the other? Um, I'll use an example like um, the, you know, this um, awful company WeWork. Um, and WeWork knew that it had to grow really, really fast and just keep bringing in more and more um, venture capital if it was going to wipe out all of the smaller um, real estate or landlord ventures in their office space. And they called this strategy blitz scaling. And this is used by other companies and it's known like business people talk about it and Silicon Valley people talk about it. So it's not just one company might um, 
you know, find it or, and it wasn't, we work, we weren't, didn't invent it, that we work was copying Uber. Uber thought it was sort of copying things that Amazon had done there. Amazon turned a profit in Uber and uh, we work haven't, but, um, but blitz scaling was a, a strategy that people talked about. So it's hard to say whether or not it's, um, you know, it emerged um, organically or spontaneously um, like a, a um, or if it was a basic strategy. I think um, the rich using laws to protect themselves um, you know, has a long and ignoble history. So that seems like um, the kind of activities that corporate lawyers um, engage in all the time. And and that and so that part seems to me like that it's been producing this neo neo feudal healthscape. Um, seems like it's a kind of or, or more organic um, development. But again, they share the information with each other. And so some people do it, folks see that they're um, that that's a winning strategy and then they copy it as well. I like arbitration, talk- same way. Yeah. yeah, I want to talk about automation really quickly because this, you know, we're taking this to a new level now where automation should be seen as something that's good. I mean, you know, no one's opposed to having automation help free up labor so people can pursue hobbies and other activities but that's not what's happening it's it's used to further subjugate and and basically alienate people from the workforce leaving no ability to actually make money with all of these lost jobs so you're talking right. about you know postmates uber things like this this is a very fascinating um evolution of what has already been kind of this dystopian aspect of this neo-feudal state. But here in Los Angeles, we're starting to see automated delivery robots driving down the sidewalk replacing postmate no it gets worse Jody. like they don't make enough money the post no yeah drivers. no it, it gets worse replacing postmate delivery drivers and like it's fucking bizarre it's like i can't even imagine being like in a wheelchair like already the scooters are everywhere littering all these sidewalks but then you have the robots delivery drivers picking up food from the restaurant bringing it to your door okay come to find out jody they are not even driven by ai they're people in poor countries with virtual headsets on, driving these robots through the streets of Hollywood, delivering sushi to people who don't oh. want to get into their cars to get it themselves. I mean, wow. Oh, I mean, I have no idea. I'm like, I'm like, uh, just like, it's always worse than I think, right? I mean, I've described this like hellscape, and then you can find something even worse that, oh my God, I just had no idea. It's like oh, delivery God. driver delivery drivers are already getting completely screwed. It's right, a horrible right. job for them, but they're like, you know what? We're not paying them little <laughs> enough. If we can get someone robotically to drive it in India where we could pay them like one twelfth of what we're paying the delivery drivers, it's it's nuts. It's incredible. It's incredible. I mean yeah, I mean what do you even say about that? I think it yeah, I think it just further yeah. shocks so like- the system. <laughs> I think it lets Our us system. know. I mean, one thing is that you, I'm just repeating what you said just a minute ago because it, it, it's important. I mean, automation should be used to make our lives better, right? There's like, it would, it's really good not to, I don't know, it's like an elevator is good if you live in a high building. You don't want to walk up 10 flights of stairs. That seems like a pretty good thing. I, um, I like being able to look up things quickly. On Google, this shouldn't all be, you know, technology shouldn't be terrible for us. But when it's um, within a 
context of private property and a context of the um, the very rich designing this and using it to make more money when they're using um, technologies to find more ways to take from us and surveil us. Yeah, this is what we resulted. It doesn't have to be this way, right? We could have, um, I don't know, like people's technology, which is what folks initially had hoped would be um, you know, even though the Internet, as we know, was designed as a DARPA project, um, there was still a lot of hope in, um, in networks and, and forms of, of you know, people having the means of, you know, of computers in their own hands and able to have laptops. And all this was supposed to be um, usher in the kind of a much cooler, more democratic world, but it didn't. You know, it it and one of the major reasons, not the only reason, but one of the major reasons for that is because of the way it um, has been trapped in capitalist corporate relations. Yeah, it seems like sci-fi. I mean, I always talk about this, but I, I like talking about it. Um, that sci-fi back in the sixties and seventies and stuff had a much more utopianist, uh, visionary feel, where people were, you know, assuming that all of this technology and the advent of all these inventions would, co- you know, we could and we can obviously build something that is incredible and for the benefit of humanity. But it seems like everyone. Um, has ceded to the notion that we are just going to be in a post-apocalyptic world and that like it's just extremely inundated with dystopian visions, which I guess makes sense based on what we're talking about. But it is just kind of sad. It's like even the creativity of of, uh, the visionary aspect of what we could build is like it's almost like destroyed itself as well. (laughs) Let's get into the lords and peasants because I think this is an obvious one, but but it but it really manifests itself when you talk about like specific um, entities like Silicon Valley tech overlords who contribute to the hyper modern form of feudalism. I mean, going back to someone like Peter Thiel, a fascinating comment that you mentioned in one of your articles, um, Peter Thiel, I think he's one of the founding members of PayPal. I mean, he's basically a backer of a lot of uh, media tech startups today, but back in 2012, he was even, he he was pretty open about this, and I want you to decipher this this um, quote right here. He said, no founder or CEO has absolute power. It's more like the archaic feudal structure. People vest the top person with all sorts of power and ability and then blame them if and when things go wrong. So it's a super weird remark. Um, I want to point out two things that I think about that. First, I mean – it's I, I think it's delusional on his part to think that anyone thinks that a CEO has or should have absolute power. So that's a super weird place to begin. Like if like normally people like it used to be the case, even up through God, I think up through the late 60s that folks recognized that and CEOs recognize this, that corporations um, had a kind of public trust. They had obligations to their employees and obligations to their communities, obligations to their shareholders. Um, they were in no ways um, simply um, individual instruments for the aggrandizement and wealth accumulation of a single person. So I think it's a very weird place for um, Peter Thiel to begin, but it gives us a little bit of insight into his own um, sort of megalomaniacal delusions that he would think that he would start there. I think second, we should contrast this idea um, 
you know, that, that it's like an archaic feudal structure with the model that was kind of publicly promoted, the model of corporations, particularly like um, what it would be like to work at Amazon or Google or Facebook or any cool Silicon Valley um, company. The model was supposed to be like um, open floor plans and a really cool laid back big campus, a fun workplace with ping pong tables and really good food and maybe a gym and massages and people like employees feedback was going to be valued and there'd be spaces and opportunities for creativity. And the model Tails pointing to like as as if that kind of fantasy world of the Apple campus um, was ever like it's like totally erased from Teal's model, and Teal points as if it's the most natural thing in the world into this idea that there's a you know essentially a, a archaic feudal structure which means a lord with vassals and serfs, and that a company is like that. So the lord might be beholden to higher law um, lords um, who might also then be beholden to ones above them. But what matters is who pledges fealty to whom and what privileges come with with fealty. And what matters is how servile various employees have to be in order to be recognized or knighted by the Lord. I mean, it's, it's utterly chilling. And I think it also lets us know that there is a neo-feudal imaginary that's floating around. Um, it's in the air. Like, and, and you see this really strongly in, in tech writing for like the last 15, maybe even 20 years. Um, tech writers have worried about um, or talked about, oh, we've got the lords and serfs of the Internet, you know, the lords who own the platforms and the rest of us. Anytime we use them, the lords take a cut. Um, there's some um, uh, internet security writers who talk about the way that um, that we all essentially end up having to um, we, we rely on like knights to defend us. Like we rely, we, we enter on a kind of vassalage um, of security. Like, oh no, if we don't have this kind of special security, our identity will be stolen. If we don't have this kind of security, um, you know, all of this, um, you know, all of, we, we risk losing our passwords and they'll be stolen and our bank accounts will be hacked and all of this. It's like we're perpetu- we're in a zone where we can't protect ourselves and where laws can't protect us. So instead we have these different little security companies or secure zones that are supposed to protect us. But, but then this also means like our own, you know, our own phones, our own laptops aren't really ours. Like we can't really do what we want with them because we need all these special security things to protect us from, you know, the lurking dangers out there. So anyway, I went, I kind of went off track, but the basic thought is that the imaginary is not one that's of democratic participation. It's not one of creative workers. It's not one of equal, of equality of any sort. It's one of hierarchy, lords, vassals, fealty, and um, servility. Exactly. And it's extractivist. I mean, all of our data, like I remember Cambridge Analytica boasting that oh, they yeah. had 5,000 data points on every American voter. That's a in- very insidious, granular level of, of atomization there of our psychology, mining our psychology, selling it to advertisers, selling it to these corporations. 
And just the monopolization of information is a unique feature of where we're at, uh, especially when you see the unprecedented power being granted to tech overlords being able to not only censor uh, without the government mandate even telling them to do so. So it's kind of censorship by proxy, which, you know, basically just embeds yeah. the notion that we still have somehow freedom to choose and freedom of speech and all that. Um, but also just the manipulation, you know, I mean, the curation of our reality when so many people are getting their information from the Internet. It's incredibly insidious. Yeah, I love your um, term uh, censorship by proxy. I think that's really crucial. And it points us again to this merging of the political and economic when private corporations determine what we can see. Like a lot of liberals have, were incensed about the you know, horrible things that Trump said. And, and we should be incensed by the horrible things Trump said and continues to say. But that doesn't mean that it makes sense for private companies like Twitter and Facebook to determine wh what is said, who says it, who's allowed to speak, to censor all of our interactions. I mean, usually we think of that kind of censorship as the responsibility of elected governments, not of private corporations. But because people are so involved and in like so embedded now, involved, um, absorbed in these kinds of social media out, um, outlets, we end up we end up subjecting ourselves to not just the economic jurisdiction of the companies, but to their political control as they determine what we can see. Like censorship should not be what a company does. Exactly. Everyone, hold on. That's on the call queue. We are going to get to you in just a second, but we want to wrap up the last defining stage of this neo-feudal era. And that perfectly segues from this kind of surveillance capitalism into catastrophism. Uh, this is something particularly hard hitting to me because, you know, we have all of this access. We have the world's information at our fingertips, access to information 24-7. It's being beamed into all of our devices that we go from one device to the next. It's so overwhelming already to process the horrifying news on a global spectrum. Um, it's impossible to know where to direct our little time and energy that we have, especially given the apocalyptic reality of where we're headed with climate change and the utter inaction of the ruling class to do absolutely anything to mitigate it. So I want to talk about how it manifests and reinforces itself, especially exacerbated by surveillance capitalism, where you have millions of workers working under this model of low-level anxiety, fear and depression of, let's say, an Amazon warehouse where you yeah. are being, you know, you're being basically technologically like monitored at every second of the day. All these delivery drivers, you could get fired if you're, you know, you go to the bathroom for too long. That's why you have like the epidemic of people like peeing in bottles and not being able to go to the bathroom. I mean, it just, it is so insane, this high stress work environment um, that correlates with, of course, these diseases of despair. And it brings me back to that theory of alienation. I feel like it's alienation on steroids. Yeah, um, 100%. I mean, this, um, so I, um, just as you've described, this catastrophism refers to a general affect or sensibility or the kind of vibe that we live and in, in 
um, these neo-feudalizing conditions. And it's conditions of climate change. It's conditions of constant anxiety. It's condition uh, conditions of of unavoidable um, surveillance down to our our basic bodily needs. Now we're going to see, I'm sure, with um, the overthrow um, of Roe v. Wade, it's going to be women um, having every aspect of their menstrual cycles and their OBGYN visits um, also um, you know, subjected to more and more surveillance. But this um, this catastrophism makes sense. It makes, makes sense that people are going to feel anxious, even exhausted, a sense of hopelessness, a sense of despair, a sense that every, like it's basically the sense that it's like the end of the world. um, That makes sense. But it's also something that we need to be able, I think, critically and politically to look at, even as it makes sense, it's a choice to whether or not to give into it completely or to try to resist it and find hope and try to fight against it and to put hope and organizing in the right places. So the catastrophism is the vibe we live in um, and we need to recognize it as that vibe. And we need to recognize that it makes sense for people, particularly people who for generations have lived in kind of the ongoing catastrophe and despair of of racist and sexist and, and homophobic evisceration um so it makes sense to feel like you know that there's a sense of catastrophe and hopelessness but we also um i i think should not um just say okay well that's it there's nothing to be done there's always something to be done and let's let's bring it to what can be done i mean when there have been successful revolutions against feudalism or capitalism let's say in china and russia and cuba and beyond it was a different time these systems were at such a lower stage of development and technology than we're in today. Um, you know, this is this global system now, not only militarized, but technologically advanced. Everything's interconnected. Clearly, when revolutions were sweeping the capitalist and colonial world, there was this moment when revolutions seemed very, even here, I mean, very, very possible, very likely but now it does seem all-encompassing and I guess just exacerbates that catastrophism. After what we've discussed today, how does that change the potential for revolution? Does this make you optimistic Optimistic? <laughs> Excuse me, about where this can go? Yeah. Um, <laughs> oh, no. Uh, Jody! So, wait, no, so, okay, here, here's... It, what it makes, what I think it should make all of us recognize is more than ever before, the political system that's in place is holding this neo feudal hellscape in place. Oh, sorry. Yeah. We lost you for a second. We lost you for a second. Oh, sorry. Okay. Did, um, did you hear? Um, I heard you say holding again. this neo feudal hellscape in place. We got yeah. So that's what the way that the current what the current political system is doing. Um, the optimism then comes in recognizing like, oh, we really can't have any hope in the current system. Like we can recognize full well exactly what its function is. So maybe that's not a lot, but it's a tiny bit. And it also fits back with the problem of the hope from the very beginning of the conversation was hoping that somehow the political system was going to be functional, even knowing full well that it wasn't. I also think that 
you know, it's it sort of has been the long story of of Euro communists and a particular kind of um, socialist or social democrat or democratic socialist that revolution needs to be that socialist revolution follows bourgeois revolution that um, it's the next phase. It has to be done through some kind of of parliamentary uh, mechanisms that it won't be like the uh, Russian revolution, that it's got to be, that it's more um, long-term, almost more like reform than revolution. And yet when we look at China and Russia, um, their revolutions were actually not strictly speaking, you know, anti-capitalist bourgeois revolutions capitalism wasn't super developed there they were also revolutions against feudalism and against landlordism so one of the things that's wild is that the the kind of um de-development that we're experiencing takes us into a place that looks a lot more like mid 20th century China and early 20th century Russia. So that's kind of, it's like, oh, it's not just like we're this successful democratic parliamentary capitalist country. No, right. It's a neo-feudal hellscape. So it looks a lot more devastating in ways that those countries did. So maybe that's another place of hope. And then the other, the other final place of hope is like, well, they're always the struggles of the people. And no matter what happens, um, people are fighting back. And whenever we look at those struggles, we can take a get, we can join them, support them, and um, try to further them. And that's a you know, or in through organizing praxis, we get um, we get some hope as well. Yeah, I mean, it's a good point that you know, especially having class analysis is really key to this, and that we need a working class struggle to really deal with this moment that we're in and it needs to be a major force and especially you know the ruling class definitely needs to fear uh, that force jody Um, revolution aside let's just close this out before we get to callers by circling back to the current moment abortion rights have been evaporated Uh, gay marriage is potentially next even the criminalization of same-sex relationships is on the docket there's a lot of urgent things happening right now um and I guess what potential do you see in beating back this wave of reaction, given the absence of a really strong uh, labor movement here? Um, I, I, I think the only answer is we have to build that movement, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? We like any other option is, is horrible, and now we have to recognize that working class struggle is the same thing as the struggle for reproductive justice for um, for women and everyone, that it's the struggle against um, you know, homophobia and transphobia and those kinds of bigotry. It's the struggle against racism, that all of those together, right? We see more and more how it's one front, many struggles, but one front against this um, ruling class that's now trying to, um, protect its base by, or, you know, it's, it's, it's own sort of you know, weak financial position by demonizing so many people. So I think um, the only way we, we can win is if we build this struggle. Um, and that means that, you know, we've got to have people pouring into the streets. And I will say, I also think we also have to 
keep thinking strategically and organizationally about how do we also keep going? How do we also fight the long fight? And what are the forms that we need to fight that long fight? And what are the um, how do we build the political power and the resilience necessary for that fight as well? Hey, everybody, that ends our preview of this episode of Dosed. The full two and a half hour episode is free to everyone. You just have to go listen on the show's podcast channel. Just search for Dosed with Abby Martin wherever you stream your podcasts, and you'll get this and so many other very fun, trippy, and informative episodes. And make sure to get the call-in app to join the conversation live with me every week.